Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. How do we hold on to hope when we are looking darkness in the face? Guest preacher, Reverend Mike House, explores the story of Job in his message, Cruciform Hope. Our scripture reading this week is all from the book of Job, one we can probably find commonality in occasionally. It's Job 1, 20 through 22, then chapter 2, verse 9, through chapter 3, verse 1. Listen now to the word of God. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or change God, charge God with wrongdoing. Then his wife said to him, Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. Mm -mm -mm. But he said to her, You speak as any foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home. Eliphaz the Temerite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They met together to go and console and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Job is not an easy book to excerpt. <laughs> um, I, I felt I wanted to bring this sermon to you. It's a variation of one I preached at North Haven uh, during the summer. But when I was thinking about the text to send to Jane and to prepare for Michael to read, I thought, okay, how do I get a flavor for Job? And I'm going to tell you a lot about the rest of the book in the midst of the sermon. But to really tell you what Job says, you really need to read all 39, 40 chapters of the book, which obviously we're not going to do this morning. But it's one of those books that doesn't lend itself to proof texting, even though there's a few passages that are used that way. Job's, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, that happens in chapter 2. As the text that I did send reflects, Job's famous patience, and if you're like me, you grew up hearing about the patience of Job. And I think even Hebrews mentions the patience of Job, and Job is known for his patience. Well, Again, the chapters, the book is some 40 chapters long. He's patient for two of them. <laughs> <laughs> and as the text reflects, he's patient 
His wife loses her patience first. And then his friends come and just sit in a circle around him. And the translation we often use at North Haven is called the inclusive Bible. And it will sometimes, it tries to make sure it's always using inclusive language. But sometimes, to me, it softens the text just a little bit. It has the friends sitting around Job in respect for his great pain. Well, that sounds very nice. But I kind of like the New Revised Standard translation that y'all used that is my <coughs> go-to translation, maybe because I used it through most of the years of my ministry. Um, and it has, they sat on the ground with him. No one spoke a word to him, for they saw his suffering was very great. Now, that sounds very similar. But respect means, oh, Job, we're really with you. Sitting there watching, well, friends with lots of empathy can sit and watch because there's no words to be said, right? And that's good, silence. But vultures are good at sitting and watching also. <laughs> and that's not so good. And I think that may be where Job's friends are really, because that's why at the very beginning of chapter 3, Job opens his mouth and curses the day of his birth. And I'm not going to read too far, because again, we don't have time. And uh, to help me make sure that I don't run at the mouth like a preacher can, I'm going to take off my watch <laughs> to respect y'all's time as well. But here's just the beginning of what Job says. Let the day perish in which I was born and the night that said a man-child is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God not seek it or light shine on it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds settle upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That day may thick darkness seize it. And he goes on like that for two chapters. <laughs> Most of the rest of the book of Job is his friends chiming in and telling him why he is wrong. And they quote to him basically conventional religious wisdom that's sort of like, Job, if you just get back to your patience and trust God like you seem to be doing, God's going to fix it. If you've done nothing wrong, God's not going to let this continue. But as it continues, they eventually begin to get a little, and Job continues to say, no, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything to deserve this. I want some answers. Then his friends start giving him answers. Well, Job, you must have done something to deserve it. As good as we thought you were, because you wouldn't be suffering like this if you hadn't done something to earn it. And Job refuses to agree. And finally, he silences them, and none of them know what to say. One of them finally kind of spouts out a struggle to say something. His last comment is only about three verses long. Now, most of the time, the friends are talking as much as Job is. All 30-something chapters are them arguing. But the last phrase of one of his friends is, with the holiness of God, what are we humans who are just worms? And Job is probably saying on his ash heap, thank you very much. <laughs> this book is powerful, but it doesn't give easy answers. When Yahweh God sweeps in at the end out of the whirlwind, God, if you read it carefully, 
doesn't really give Job any answers. He says, in effect, to Job, who is this who is questioning things he doesn't understand? Can you make creation? Can you control Leviathan? Can you do this? Can you do that? Can you do this? Can you do that? Can you do this? Can you do that? Can you do this? And Job says, oh, okay, I'm going to be silent. No, 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 Job. Can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? Can and Job finally says, I repent. But the strange bit of it is, God says to the friends at the very end, Eliphaz, you other two guys, I think you need to go to Job and ask him to pray for you because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. And what's troubling and powerful and amazing about that statement of God at the end Job has almost called God a monster if, in fact, he hasn't. And God says, but Job has spoken the truth. We're going to get to maybe what that's about in a minute. Let me tell you a bit more about me because there's a lot of me in this sermon. Um, I've been a friend of Jane's for some time and of her brother Stan and his husband Jim. Um, Jane and I share the experience of being queer pastors in a system that's all, not always real friendly to them. I was raised in Commerce, Texas in a small university town and came to the conscious awareness of being gay when I was in seminary. Strange place to realize you're gay in theology school in the late 70s, but that's when it came to me, but it was, okay, so I'm called to ministry, I'll just serve from the closet, and that's what I did for some 30 years. That worked okay when you were 20-something, kind of worked okay when you were 30-something. When you got to be 40-something, people began to look at you strange. When you got to be 50-something, are you? And I also had the experience of serving a church that had openly gay and lesbian and straight members, Greenland Hills, all in one congregation, singles and couples. I accidentally came out to one of the members when we were talking on the playground, and he was talking about a former relationship of his that was somewhat toxic, he, how glad he was to be in a healthy relationship now. And I recognized parallels of one of my own closeted, rather toxic relationships, and I started talking about it. Before I realized it, I was using the true pronoun instead of the closeted pronoun, if you're with me. And I said, he, him. <laughs> And I said, Dave, I think I just came out to you. And he laughed and he said, yeah, you did, but that's okay. But I also had the experience in another church of having an openly lesbian and openly gay couple, two couples leading the praise team, and very strongly homophobic members who wanted me to preach anti-gay sermons, and I refused. They ultimately asked me if I was gay, and I said, I'm a minister in good standing, that's all I'm going to tell you. You don't have the right to ask me any more questions. Uh, so it wasn't always an easy road. In 2011, I decided to take off the mask and not just be an ally, but lend my face to the discussion, hoping that people who had known me, that would make a difference, and it did. But at the same time, I was out of, I, I'm still ordained. I never gave up my ordination. But um, 
I wasn't in active ministry for about 10 years. This last summer, our pastor, Ann Willett at North Haven, had me serve as her interim pastor while she went on a renewal leave. I got to preach several times. I got to lead worship as the pastor in charge in Ann's absence. Parts of my soul woke up that I thought had gone to sleep. And so when Ann got back, they offered me the job of part-time associate to help with visitation. And we decided to do it as an appointment. So that tells you a little bit about me. That's some of the struggles. Some of the good parts, my husband Cody and I started dating not long after I came out. Got married in 2017, we're a couple from about 2012. When it became legal, we got married in, at North Haven. And when he died of cancer this past year after a three-year struggle with uh, uh, abdominal cancer, uh, intestinal cancer, bowel, bowel cancer, um, his memorial service was there as well in January. And at the conference this year, his name was read among the clergy spouses who had died in the past year. No big deal was made of it, but I'm pretty sure that's the first time a gay spouse was named in that list. Not the first one who died, <laughs> but the first time it was acknowledged. So that tells you a little bit about me. Also may tell you a little bit about how I come to Job. And the idea of cruciform hope. When I mentioned Cody's death, and thank you for, I saw the, the looks of sorrow and, and empathy. Thank you. But I have to tell you, that was not all sad. He was diagnosed about three years before his death. And he was the kind of guy who always wanted to know exactly what he was facing. So he would get very impatient with an oncologist who didn't tell him the truth. He wanted to know, what am I doing? What is the treatment going to do? How long do I have? Because he had a bucket list. And we worked it. We went to Alaska. We took a train trip through the West, California. I'm a big Disney fan. So we went to Disneyland, San Francisco, through the Rockies to a friend's wedding, into Springfield and Abraham Lincoln country. Our last trip was Hawaii. But his last outing was in October of last year when he really couldn't do a car trip anymore because it hurt to ride. But he was going to hear Bonnie Raitt live. <laughs> and she was singing at Grand Prairie. And I said, Cody, I've got the tickets, but can we do this? And he said, we're doing it. I'm taking pain pills before we go. There's a Whataburger at the entrance. We'll stop at the Whataburger. <laughs> I'll get myself back in shape. If I need to take more pain pills, I will. And if I go to sleep in the theater, you can nudge me. I'm going to hear Bonnie Raitt live. <laughs> She's been on my bucket list. And we went. And he loved it. He was on in-home hospice for the last six months, the last two weeks inpatient hospice, and even then he was wanting to know exactly what we were looking at. And some of his last words to me when it was just him and me were, are we okay? And I said, yes, of course. And he said, well, I want you to know I've never felt more loved by you, by our dog who was with us at hospice. Uh, by my friends, 
by my family in Oklahoma, and there'd been some estrangement there, but they were all there that, to see him. And God. That was at 3 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> the next day, he woke up at 3 a.m. again, and he said, you know I have to go. And I said, yeah, it's okay. But one of these, sorry, I'm talking maybe more about me than I should, but one of these little coincidences that I think is more than a coincidence, he did lose consciousness and was still physically there for about a week. But I'm also an English major, as you'll be able to tell in a minute when I get back to Job. Um, so I love all kinds of, I love literature from Alice in Wonderland to Shakespeare. So here's a little bit of Shakespeare. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. I know science might say, well, this is just coincidence, Mike, but Cody's final moments, a friend of his, Bryn Long, and Bryn's wife, Yvonne, were there with us pretty much 24-7 from Colorado. And Cody had known Bryn for 20-something years. Bryn's a trans man. Cody was his best friend on both sides of the transition, his best man at the wedding. And Bryn and Yvonne had gone to get lunch. It was just us. One of the nurses asked me, well, what's the story of your meeting? And I told her. And she said, oh, that's such a sweet story. And his breathing changed. And she said, it's close. I put the dog in his lap, and instead of cuddling like the dog usually would, the dog sat straight up and looked at him. And the nurse said, it's very close. Dogs know. And sure enough, not long after that, just me and him, he took his last breath. So I called his mom first in Oklahoma. Then I called Bryn, just to let Bryn know, don't rush back, but he's gone. When Bryn got back, and here comes the coincidence that's not a coincidence, I don't think. They had finished lunch and paid the bill and were about to leave the restaurant when Cody took his last breath. And there's a part of me that is convinced that, okay, Cody's comatose, but in whatever state we are at that moment, okay, Mike's told that story, I like that story. Mike's okay, and it's just us, which is as it should be. And the dog's with him. Good. Oh, yeah, Brennan and Yvonne have finished lunch and paid the bill. They won't have to rush back or, or stop eating. <laughs> Now's the right time. Cody's the type of guy who would have been that schedule. The last two or three years, I'm finding out all the conversations he was having of, don't let Mike become a hermit. Don't let Mike stay in the stay in the house. Don't make sure Mike goes out and, get, and, and eats out. And Pastor Ann, make sure Mike gets to preach because he needs to. <laughs> he was taking care of me as he was dying. That's love, folks. I was lucky to be loved like that. Which brings me back, believe it or not, to Job. <laughs> One of the reasons I love Job is Job does not give us easy answers to suffering, and it doesn't say there's a reason for it. Cody did nothing to earn his cancer. No one does. Cancer just happens. It's not punishment. But if you look it in the face, and it doesn't mean that God has stopped loving you, it sure is easier to deal with. 
Cody knew he was loved. I'm not sure Job throughout his book always does, but Job refuses to take easy answers. Job refuses to say, I'm going to stop looking for justice. Job refuses to say, I must have done something to cause this. Job refuses to say, I must deserve this somehow. I need an explanation. Job refuses to say there must be a purpose for it. Job says, I'm innocent. I don't deserve it. I want answers. But at the end, even though he doesn't get answers, what does he get? He gets presence. Cruciform hope. What does that mean? Well, to me, it's the hope that we see in Mark's gospel and Matthew's. I'll put Luke's and John's to the side for the moment. But in Mark and Matthew's story of the cross, Jesus only says one thing. His final words in Mark and in Matthew are only this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cry of dereliction, of suffering, of forsakenness. But even then, my God, my God. He may not be saying Abba at the moment, but he's saying, still my God, so does Job. I'm going to wrestle with you. I'm going to want answers. I'm going to seek you. When you blow in out of the whirlwind and don't answer a single question, Yahweh, you're here. And that may be enough. I like Job because the book of Proverbs tries to make it so much easier on me. I love Proverbs and Job side by side because the Bible will sometimes argue with the Bible. Did you know that? (laughs) Proverbs says... Everything's going to be fine. Just do what God wants. Honor God. You're going to be healthy. You're going to be rich. And then someone comes along and says, no, I think I'm going to write a book about Job who is perfect and good, and even God says he's good, and he loses everything. Wealth, health, kids, land, property, everything. Proverbs, it just can't be that easy. I like Job because I can look at the news of this week. I can deal with my husband's cancer and my own missing him. I can look at the news this week and see the evil of what Hamas did to the Israelis in the kibbutzes, the horror. But I can also see the innocent Palestinian civilians being bombed out of life and home, suffering both sides. Both sides are Job on his ash heap, scratching his sores, saying, where are my children? Why is this happening? Where is God? And then Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, still my God. There's a play by Archibald McLeish. I've never gotten to see it, but I wish I, wish I could. Um, it's called J.B. And what it does, it sets the book of Job as if it were happening today, but it's basically a bare stage. There's a couple of figures at the very beginning who are in the Bible, part of what the Bible sets up in the narrative is that God and Satan make a bet. Will Job really hold on to his integrity? But they drop out after chapter 2. You don't see them again in the book of Job. In the play JB, they're there watching all the way through. It's a couple of clowns 
acting out the book of Job. And one of them is called Mr. Nichols, Old Nick. And he says, ah, I thought I had the quote right here, but when all else fails, I heard upon the dry dung heap that man cry out who cannot sleep. If God is God, he is not good. If God is good, he is not God. Take the even, take the odd. I would not sleep here if I could, except for the little green leaves in the wood and the wind on the water. Because the idea that this character has is if God is God, he was going to control everything. And if suffering happens, he can't be good. That quandary. And sure enough, J.B. and his wife Sarah, she's named in J.B., as are his children. They all have names. And they all have individual fates. And J.B. and Sarah are struggling with this. And Job is saying there must be justice. There must be something. There must be a reason. And Sarah's getting all she can have of it. She's saying, I lost my children. And that's why in the play she finally says, J.B., curse God and die. End it. And finally she leaves because she can't take it any longer. She leaves the room and he's by himself. The friends have come and gone. They aren't in the play very long. But at the very end, J.B.'s there by himself. You have the voice from the whirlwind and J.B.'s wondering, okay, what happens now? And he's there by himself and he hears a knock on the door and he opens it. And there's Sarah, his wife. He said, I thought you'd left. And she said, I thought I had too. And there's a hint that she might mean leaving in the ultimate sense. But she said, but by the bridge, I saw this growing plant. And I brought it home. And she says to JB, the final dialogue is amazing. She says to him, Cry for justice, and the stars will stare until your eyes sting. Weep. Enormous winds will thrash the water. Refuse sleep for your lost children. Snow will fall. Snow will fall. JB, you wanted justice, and there was none. Only love. And JB says, Sarah, it's too dark. I can't see. And Sarah says, then blow, sorry. <laughs> then blow on the coal of the heart, my darling. Blow on the coal of the heart. The candles in the church may have gone out. The lights may have gone from the sky. But blow on the coal of the heart and we'll see by and by. We'll see where we are. The wit won't burn and the wet soul smolders, but blow on the coal of the heart and we'll know. We'll know.
And the play ends with them starting to set the table, the chairs back around the kitchen table, restoring the house to order. And the last bit of the play is the recognition that the door is opened and the sunlight, unbroken, is shining in. Cruciform hope. Because Christian hope doesn't say everything's going to be easy. Christian hope doesn't say there's never going to be pain. In fact, it tends to say just the opposite. The center of our faith is a crucified man. But Christian hope says, even when all you can see is darkness, no, that's not the last word. Love is. Blow on the coal of the heart, my darling, and we'll know. Amen. We hope today's service was a blessing to you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. And remember, you can always access our sermons on our website at trinityumc.org, our Facebook page, our YouTube channel, and our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. If you like what you're hearing, you can support our ministry through our website at tumcd.org. God bless you in the week ahead, and we'll see you on Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.